Hi, everybody. Welcome to the April 3rd, 2020 edition of Colorado Inside Out. Again, our video conference call edition. Thank you so much for joining us and for bearing with us as we present a, in a whole different format, but frankly, a format that all of us are getting used to in our new normal. Uh, we continue to produce it remotely. So again, there might be a little, a couple of hitches in the get along that we're not used to in our studio, but thank you for bearing with us. And we're excited to be with you again this week. Let's get started with a quick take on all the Coloradans that seemingly are not able to keep themselves away from the mountains during the COVID-19 lockdown. Patty Calhoun from Westford, let's start with you and your thoughts on the folks, the fact that we just simply can't get away from Bertha Pass and Loveland Pass for some skiing. Well, you are allowed to go outside and exercise and get air, but you're supposed to keep safe distances. The wild thing is that bit that has been the skiers who've gone up, wanted to climb up the hills, ski down, but can't manage to keep their own distance. And we've had warnings two weekends in a row, and I'm sure we'll have them again because we just had new powder. <laughs> David Copel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. Uh, is it a simply a matter of the magnetism of the snow, or is it because people thinking, well, if I'm out here in the mountains in the beautiful uh, Colorado Rockies, I simply can't get this deadly disease? Well, and if you stay far enough from, away from other people, that that's true. A, a big reason people live in Colorado is is they don't want to live without the mountains. But it, but it's important to, for people to remember that, that mountain communities have small hospitals and they would get quickly overwhelmed by a surge. And a lot of them are recovering uh, from the initial uh, CCP virus outbreak uh, back in, in late February and early March. And so we don't want to have people from other areas coming in. We need to give them some time uh, to chill and, and, and be safe. And, and for the time being, um, it's probably better not to, uh, to recreate uh, outside one's own county. Here, here. Elena Alvarez from Colorado Politics joins us. So, Elena, your thoughts on uh, the fact that some of the things that some of our uh, state troopers need to do is handle a traffic jam on Berthoud Pass. Um, you know, Coloradans are people of the outdoors. I get it. Um, but as to David's point, um, you know, these these mountain communities are really vulnerable right now. Um, and, and to quote uh, Governor Jared Polis, it's really dumb to be visiting them right now. They have higher infection rates uh, than most of the areas that we do, um, that we are living in right now. So we just need to stay home. Um, and those traffic jams will subside as we do that. You're here. And rounding up the panel for his premiere in Colorado Inside Out, Jake Douglas, who serves in the National Labor Commission for the Democratic Socialists of America. Jake, thanks for joining us. And your thoughts on the magnetism of the powder up in the Rock, Colorado Rocky Mountains. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, I mean, folks need to get out, need to get, you know, get some exercise. But I think it raises a question that we should have been addressing before of why has there been so much underinvestment in uh, healthcare systems out in the rural areas of Colorado? Um, folks, you know, the hospital systems out there are really struggling to adapt to the crisis and, you know, raise the important question of uh, why has there been so much underinvestment by the by the state in uh, these rural areas? Well, let's get to it. Keeping our eye on the state's response to the crisis. Last Friday, 14 of the 16 state and Senate Republicans wrote a letter, a public letter, criticizing what they believe has been a lack of collaboration from Governor Polis during the pandemic response. In the letter, they were also critical of Polis' statewide shutdown order, saying that areas with fewer infections should not be lumped under the order. Patty, we'll start with you. Uh, I understand the point, I guess, of uh, wanting more communication. But at this stage of the game, I don't think Governor Polis has actually had a lot of uh, uh, criticism. In fact, he's had a lot of bipartisan 
a positive response. So this letter seemed a little tone deaf in the middle of everything. Uh, it, it kind of reminded me of that scene from Pulp Fiction when John Travolta was upset that uh, Harvey Keitel's character wasn't being nicer to him. He's like, well, pretty please with sugar on top. Please go clean the car. And it's almost like that, that's what the letter sounded like to me. What did it sound like to you? Well, as we've discovered, this is not the time for consensus building, sitting around the campfire, singing Kumbaya. You have to move a lot faster. And I think what Jared Polis has done, focusing on data, has been very, very smart. As we've noticed and just talked about, a lot of the communities that got hit first were rural. I mean, you're talking about Gunnison. You're not talking about some of the biggest ski areas, but areas that came up with problems. So to do a statewide mandate only makes sense right now. Essential businesses still can continue. Farms can continue in the rural areas. You can still go grocery shop. What you're not going to be doing, ideally, is infecting a lot of people in areas that simply can't handle it because they don't have the infrastructure. David, I certainly understood that there's a difference between social interactions and what's going on in Yuma versus downtown Denver. I get that difference. Uh, but I don't know if I want to treat the citizens of Yuma with uh, any less care than I would want the citizens of downtown Denver because a stay-at-home order is for everybody's safety. What did you take away or what did you think about the letter and then so far the response we've seen this week from the state? Well, destroying people's jobs is, is not for their safety in some ways. And there's a lot of evidence that shows how um, unemployment and isolation cause all kinds of bad health outcomes. So whatever you think of the merits, the, the fact is, as the letter, which was, I thought, quite respectful in tone and said that they wanted to work with the governor, they wanted to help him succeed, they've been supporting him so far, but he promised them that he would, he promised that he would consult with the legislative leadership of both parties in both chambers, and he broke that promise. He didn't even provide the legislators with the text of the order. They had to find it out by reading Marion Goodland's story in Colorado Politics. I think it's questionable whether the legislature after 9-11 should have adopted the Bush administration's model bill uh, that gave our governor so many uh, near dictatorial powers. And if a governor wants to exercise those quasi-dictatorial powers, uh, it'll be better if he does so uh, by consulting with people first uh, before he acts. Elena, with your work with Colorado Politics, what are some of the things that you're hearing as responses, not only to the letter, but just in general to Governor Polis and the state's response in the last uh, week to 10 days? You know, I've been hearing a lot of um, positive feedback about the way that um, Governor Polis is handling all of this. Um, what I have also heard about this letter is that, you know, we have to remember that it's an election year. Um, and so I think that more than anything, this is an election year statement. Um, these uh, lawmakers are, as we all know, part of a legislative minority. And so they're not going to they're not going to um, sit back on an opportunity to really show voters that they're not hanging out in the back seat. And I think that's that's what this move was really all about. Jake, there's a couple different angles to this. You can go with what the letter is all about or just simply from Governor Polis's response. But what did you take away from this week's headlines? In Denver and I was laid off due to the crisis and you know unfortunately in order you know you look at places like Italy that waited longer and uh, we need to come together and act as a community to protect people's lives but I think you know 100% right that we can't just let folks who are out of work um, be left by the wayside we need to be talking about paid leave we need to be talking about rent relief to make sure that folks who are you know forced to stay home for the benefit of us all um, are able to survive this crisis and act even more aggressively. 
Let's keep looking at the responses. On Wednesday, the Colorado Supreme Court ruled that the state legislature could pick right up where it left off when it took a recess on March 14th due to the COVID-19 crisis. In the case, Republicans claim that the gavel amendment passed by the voters in 1988 mandates that the session must end after 120 consecutive days. In a four to three decision, the court ruled the amendment was too ambiguous for the current situation. Now the legislature has until July to pass its budget. David, you had a, uh, a very uh, uh, personal perspective when it comes to this being involved. Tell us about that involvement and uh, what you thought of the judgment. Sure. Since I, I teach con state Colorado State constitutional law at, at Denver University, I wrote an amicus brief for the Independence Institute um, on on this issue and uh, ended up being on the side of the the three justices rather than the than the four. In 1988, Wayne Knox, a very classic liberal Democrat state legislator from Denver, took the lead in uh, shepherding through the. Uh, legislature as a referendum and then passing by the voters overwhelmingly the gavel amendment, give a vote to every legislator. And it made many reforms in the legislative process. And one of those said that sessions are going way too long. We need to retain a citizen legislator, not, and not have a full-time professional legislator like the dysfunctional states of California and uh, or New York. And so it said that a regular legislative session maybe no more than 120 calendar days. And of course, the legislature doesn't get all the work it wants to done um, after 120 calendar days. The legislature it can, itself can call itself back into special session. And the governor, of course, can call a special session. Uh, 120 day, calendar days is not an ambiguous phrase. Calendar days throughout Colorado law, 140 different statutes, uh, cases, all the precedents, including recent ones from the uh, the Colorado Supreme Court itself, show that calendar days is days in a row on the calendar. That's exactly what the phrase means. There's no ambiguity to it. But Attorney General Weiser, on behalf of Governor Polis, claimed that this phrase is somehow ambiguous. And so when the legislature passed a law exempting itself from the 120-day calendar days rule when there's a public health emergency, uh, that's okay in interpreting the so-called ambiguity. As the dissenters pointed out, if the legislature can invent a rule that trumps the Constitution, in one case, they can do it in other cases. And this is a, uh, maybe it seems like inside legislative baseball to folks, but it's actually something quite dangerous because this, this tells us we have a 4-3 majority in the Colorado Supreme Court that in an emergency situation will really let uh, the government get away with almost anything, no matter how clear the text of the Constitution. Elena, it feels that like in any crisis, you're going to find out there are problems to take care of right now, and then it exposes issues that we may or may not take for granted because those things only come up during a crisis. And it seems like a law like this would. I mean, no, at no point would we ever think about needing to uh, stop a legislature for uh, several weeks like it's going right now, except something like this is going to happen literally uh, you know, twice every hundred years, hopefully. Um, what are your thoughts about how the decision came down and uh, the response to it? You know, these are really unprecedented times. We've heard that over and over again, but it, it's so true. Um, there are so many unknowns in this situation. You know, how um, how the legislature will come back together? Will that be virtually? I know that's being considered right now. Um, when this pandemic will really 
pass by and how it's going to affect the budget. There's just so many unknowns. Um, but I think that one thing's really clear, and that's there's a political angle here because um, some lawmakers have June primaries coming up and they're eager to get out and campaign. Um, the catch is that they can't do that. Uh, they can't raise funds you know, from lobbyists or trade associations while they're in session. So I think we're going to see some, some action um, unfold really quickly from the Capitol. And uh, House Speaker Casey Becker uh, sort of echoed that this week. Well, yeah, that's a good point. I think a lot of folks, I, you brought up in the last point that there's still an election going on. Uh, that's not going to get canceled. It might go mail-in ballot. Well, actually, it already is in Colorado, but it's mm -hmm. not going to get canceled. Uh, Jake, let's turn to you. Do you think the legislature is going to probably have other responses uh, to how it does business, not, not just the public policy in Colorado, but how it does business uh, this year because uh, it feels unique? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're looking at if you you know look at any of the predictions that have come out the last few weeks, you know, hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of deaths across the United States if this crisis is not taken seriously. We're looking at maybe one in three Americans out of work uh, this month, which is larger you know larger number than at any time in American history, larger than the Great Depression. So, I do not want to see our state legislature simply go home and uh, not address the absolutely dire needs that the people of Colorado are facing right now. Um, we need to to act and not to, uh, you know, just just look at, um, you know, the letter of the, the law there, but we need a government that's able to address um, the enormous crisis that we're facing at the moment. Patty, do you sense, uh, what's your sense about the legislature is going to do in response, not only to maybe how they did this law, but is there going to be other ways that they adjust or can adjust how they do business as a legislative body this year? Well, we're all adjusting and not to argue with David, although I'd love to, he was sitting next to me. We're all redefining what a calendar is now. We're all on virtual calendars. Things are changing. Denver City Council at the last second had to change their own rules because by city charter, they weren't allowed to have a virtual meeting, even if it's completely accessible to the public. So we're already seeing changes. I think the legislature will focus on the business at hand, that they've gotten some of the bills through. They've got more they're going to clean up. We're not going to see a lot of our big issues dealt with this year. We're not going to have a transportation bill go through, for example. But I think when the legislature gets back, they will deal with a lot of important issues, including how to deal with something like this if it comes up again. And maybe they'll redefine the calendar for all of us by law. <laughs> it's a, I, I'm starting to think about Julian calendars and everything else. And that's probably a, for a CIO for another day, but uh, there might be some new calendar definitions indeed, Patty. Homeless shelter organizations and Denver city leaders are considering creating a consolidated shelter that would be open 24 hours, seven days a week. They say this is necessary because individual shelters are facing a shortage of staff and because libraries and other public spaces that usually have resources for the homeless are closed. Uh, Alina, you're our expert when it comes to Denver issues covering Denver politics and beyond for Colorado politics. Uh, this is, uh, I think, one of these things that people always know that there's a homeless issue in Colorado, but in a crisis like this, we have to handle it completely differently. What are you hearing from Denver sources about how they're going to handle it? 
You know, the city right now is being pretty tight-lipped about everything, um, but what we do know is that the National Western Center is being considered um, as an option. The city is exploring all different locations with service providers. Um, they're partnering together to, to sort of figure out logistics behind all of this. Um, and service provider leaders have been told that the transition could happen as soon as April 6th, although I'm not quite sure if we're still on track considering how um, quiet the city is still being. Um, there are some rumblings um, among homeless advocates and um, even some employees that work for these shelters who aren't happy with this idea um, and think that putting you know, many different uh, communities within the homeless population um, under one roof is not a good idea and can present a whole host of problems. Um, so they're sort of pushing uh, more down the route of um, taking up vacant motels or perhaps apartments where people can really, you know, have their own space um, and be sheltered that way. One thing that everyone is agreeing on, though, is, as you said, Dom, um, our shelters are are overcrowded and uh, they're understaffed. And so something really needs to change here. Jake, as we uh, look at the homeless issue in Colorado, I think right now in the part of the crisis where uh, we know there's an economic ripple effect for a whole lot of people, uh, homeless folks are already in a situation financially and we're already in desperate straits. Are advocates able to do enough right now to address the particular issues facing this part of our population? Yeah, absolutely not. I mean, at the moment, um, we have something like 10,000 of our, you know, sisters and brothers out there on the street every day who, um, you know, are in violation of the stay-at-home order because they have no home to go to. and. I definitely do not think, you know, agree with groups like Denver Homeless Out Loud that um, shepherding folks into one centralized location is going to solve this issue right now. When um, so many folks who are who are unhoused already are, you know, immunocompromised, already have uh, physical and um, other ailments that make them particularly susceptible to the disease. And so, what I think, you know, we really need to start thinking about is we have why do we have so many folks who are homeless in Denver when there are tens of thousands of empty luxury uh, condos and hotel rooms downtown that could easily be used to house folks, you know, in a time of crisis like this. The governor has the authority to use, uh, you know, his executive powers to um, take possession of, you know, hotels and, and other uh, places like that downtown in a moment of crisis like this. And I think what we really need to start thinking about um, how can we get people that kind of individual care they need to make sure that they can survive this crisis and not just be treated as um, something we'd rather not like to see. Patty, it's not as if the homeless issue in Denver or in other parts of Colorado was easy before this crisis, and now it just became uh, a Rubik's Cube. Now they dunked it into a, a tank full of piranhas. It's only become more difficult. Uh, what do you think of the city's response, and how should it be hashed out? Well, you're right that we haven't solved this. And if we haven't solved it in good times, we are not going to solve it in bad times. What we can do are do some fixes. Aurora did wind up taking over a motel or a hotel at an unnamed location where there are homeless who would want to go into it, who are healthy to go into it. I don't know if Denver's plan is going to come through. It has been secretive. But we also have snow, which is moving people into the shelters, making it more crowded. And then when good weather comes up again, those who don't want to go into shelters, and they have a lot of reasons they don't want to go into shelters now, much less one massive shelter, they're going to scatter along the streets. I mean, I've been driving around a lot, and you do not see social distancing right now among the homeless. That's an issue, too, with the health concerns. So it's going to be on a case-by-case -case basis, really, because 
everyone is homeless for a different reason. And we're going to have some new homeless who are going out on the streets now because they have no place to live because they can't pay their rent. David, uh, it's a complex issue. We're not going to solve it here. And I don't think the, the city is going to have some sort of magic wand. But what do you think the decisions being made right now? What are some of the questions that should be being asked uh, by these leaders about tackling this problem? Well, as Patty says, it's a longstanding problem, and, and it's a, a diverse pro, uh, problem. People have various reasons, including substance abuse or just losing their job or all, all kinds of reasons, and not every one solutions for one won't work for another. Um, but I, I like the idea of there being a 24-7 shelter um, at some point, because as, as your, your question said, uh, well, now the libraries are closed, and so homeless people don't go there in the daytime. Well. I'd like to help the libraries and librarians. Libraries are supposed to be safe spaces for, for learning and education and research. And let's let librarians be librarians again, uh, instead of having them have to be the people who are administering treatment for drug overdoses. So let, let, let's, I, I, I like the idea of giving uh, homeless people someplace to be uh, in the daytime as well. Let's get a quick take on this last one. It's the first week of the month, which means bills are coming due. With widespread unemployment and people missing work due to infection, many are struggling to pay the rent, water, and electricity, and phone bills. Governor Polis has put a pause on evictions for 30 days, but some leaders are calling for larger action. Jake, we'll start with you on this one. Your short take on uh, the response of only lifting, uh, pausing evictions for 30 days. Should that be longer? What else should be done? Yeah, you know, I'm I'm a food service worker, and when the order came down, um, you know, me and so many uh, service workers in Denver like me have been thrown out of work. And my my partner, who I live with, is immunocompromised, and so you know, she can't go get another job as well. I can't go out and work at something like a grocery store because if I got the virus, literally, I could come home, bring it home, and and kill her. Like it's that serious, and so. You know, although it's been great that uh, Denver has halted evictions and uh, utility shutoffs, we really need to think about um, what are folks going to do who are out of work and can't pay. Um, every rent day that goes by is hundreds and thousands of more dollars of debt that people are going to be taking on. And if nothing is done, we're going to be looking at, you know, mass debt and mass evictions at the end of this crisis for folks, you know, through no fault of their own. And so um, DSA, Democratic Socialist America, City councilors like Candy Sedebaca and Chris Hines um, are taking up a call to uh, ask the city of Denver to do everything in its power to cancel all rent and mortgage and utility payments for the duration of the crisis. There are states like New York, which have already introduced bills um, into, into the state Senate there to um, put this into, into action so that folks can stay in their homes and be safe um, as they need to be for all of our sakes and not be saddled with enormous debt at the end of this crisis. Patty, your quick take on something that's probably going to become a larger problem before it becomes smaller. Well, like the homeless issue, it's not like rent was cheap in Denver before this. We already get people who have a lot of trouble making their ends meet. They're living in tight quarters because they're sharing spaces. So they're gonna have to, it's gonna be tough for them to come up with rent even a month from now, two months from now after having been out of work. So some kind of program in the city and the state it will not only prevent eviction, but help them come up with money to pay for future months would be really needed. David, your thoughts on this issue that's bound to grow bigger? Well, if, if somebody's lost a job and they can't pay rent this month, um, first of all, the, the way to start is to 
try and work it out personally with the landlord. And I agree with the, the rule that we shouldn't have evictions at this kind of situation for, for people who did lose their jobs through no fault of their own. But the, the notion of canceling rent for everyone is really just a fancy name for theft. If you live in someone else's property and you have the money to pay, pay the rent, uh, but you won't contribute anything to pay for the maintenance or help the landlord pay for the mortgage, you're just taking advantage of a small businessman or somebody else who, who needs that rental income to, for food for their family uh, or, or to pay off the mortgage. Uh, you can't have a free lunch for one group without harming um, other people and, and landlords are not greedy Simon Legree type folks. A lot of them are small folks and then that, that's their how they make their living uh, maybe in, in retirement or uh, after a lifetime of hard work and, and owning a couple rental properties. Elena, wrap it up for us. Sure. These are difficult times for everyone. And I think the only way that we're going to get through this is by working together. So both sides really need to find um, mutually tolerable solutions. Um, and unfortunately, I think that's going to mean some tough trade-offs for both sides. Well, it's time for a very, very part of the show. Even a crisis like this, we go with Disgrace of the Week. This is our shorter version edition with only a couple minutes left in the show. Patty Calhoun, as always, please start us off. Well, let me re return to a million years ago show last month when I thought the Mother Cabrini holiday was a stupid solution to the Columbus Day debacle. I actually went up to Mother Cabrini Shrine right before it closed. And I have to say, I found it very comforting. I am happy that's a new holiday. Patty, I am thrilled to see you convert on this one. That's absolutely wonderful. Thank you. David, your disgrace of the week. Well, happily, a disgrace that, that appears to be close to ending is the federal government's wrong, dangerous, deadly advice telling people not to wear masks. Senator Cory Gard Senator Michael Bennett uh, has, says he wears a mask himself, urges other people to do so. And if you'd like to see the scientific medical research behind why Senator Bennett is right, uh, go read my uh, article on Complete Colorado this morning. Elena, your disgrace of the week. I got to give it to uh, Hobby Lobby and the other businesses that have just refused to close their doors and have since been cited and forced to close their doors under the stay-at-home order. Um, they're not essential and they need to cooperate. Jake. Yeah, I think there was a story this week about uh, Whole Foods workers in Colorado um, having been sick as early as December, but having to continue to come into work because the reality is they weren't being offered paid leave. And so how are they going to be taking care of their families? Um, and so I think the continued lack of paid leave, family and medical in Colorado is a disgrace of the week for me. It's an extremely needed part of the show and our tradition. Say something nice. Bumper sticker edition. Patty. All the people out there making masks, including my mother. Here, here. I'm always a big fan of uh, Mrs. Calhoun. David. The Allen Company, which is a hunting and fishing gear company in Broomfield, they're making face masks and protective gowns for hospitals. And Senator Cory Gardner, with his great relationship with Taiwan, has just gotten two, two million Taiwanese uh, high-quality face masks shipped to the United States. Elena. Uh, a new phone thing was launched in Denver by um, state and city leaders representing Denver, and it's to help people reach out to the older um, community and make sure that they're okay, and I think that's pretty great. And Jake. Nice thing of the week. Um, glad to see uh, workers in Greeley uh, taking matters into their own hands when the company uh, refused to um, take the virus seriously and staged a 800 worker walkout earlier this week um, and refusing to, you know, standing up for their own dignity. 
Well, that is all the time we have for this episode of Colorado Inside Out. I certainly want to thank all of you for continuing to watch and for checking out everything on PBS12.org. For everybody here at PBS12 and Colorado Inside Out, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you so much for watching. Be well, stay safe. We'll catch you next week.